Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. My sheet here says that I'm your host, Olga Oliker. That is not true. Uh, I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff, and I'm here uh, in the CSIS studio. Um, in this episode of Russian Roulette, uh, I'm going to speak with Jeff Rathke from the CSIS Europe program, where we're going to talk summitry, uh, both the NATO summit, which just concluded, and the U.S.-Russia summit in Helsinki, which by the time this podcast comes out will also have just concluded. Let's get started. Welcome back to Russian Roulette. Uh, I am joined in the studio today by our old friend Jeff Rathke, who is a senior fellow in the CSIS Europe program uh, and is about actually to uh, depart, to head off to be the new president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies. We're going to talk today about uh, summits, both the NATO summit uh, and what is currently the upcoming summit or, sorry, bilateral meeting uh, between President Trump and President Putin in Helsinki. Now we're sort of in the, the gap between these two uh, meetings. We have the results of the, of the NATO summit. We're still waiting to see what happens uh, in Helsinki. So Jeff, let's start with uh, NATO. Um, how did this summit go? Uh, what surprised you? And what does this mean for uh, NATO's relationship with Russia? Well, of course, the story that's dominated the news coming out of this summit is the the ju juxtaposition between the actual conclusions of the summit, which uh, when you read through the summit declaration, uh, actually are pretty substantial, and they demonstrate a real continuity in American defense policy from the Trump administration back to the Obama administration and maybe even Arguably further before, back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the contrast between those really serious and uh, and far-reaching proposals is, of course, so great with the president's penchant for picking fights with our allies. Usually it's Germany, um, but he didn't limit himself uh, to Angela Merkel and, and Germany as the target of his criticism. He made a point of... Uh, as uh, I think a, an administration official put it on background in the Washington Post, of overturning the table at this summit. This was not a spontaneous outburst. This was part of the plan, it seems. Now, it, is this about the 2% defense spending target or is there more to it than this? Well, it's ostensibly about the 2% uh, target. But I think, it's, I think it's something more than that. Because if the United States wants to get allies to 2%, there are a whole host of effective ways of doing that diplomatically through public diplomacy and so forth. But it's hard to see how berating uh, Angela Merkel publicly and attacking Germany is going to make it easier for them to do what the Trump administration wants. And so I think this is also about conveying the president's displeasure with this particular alliance and with alliance relationships more generally. You know, alliances, uh, of course, they magnify American power and influence, and that's why the United States has invested so heavily in them for the last 70 years. But I think the way the president looks at them, they are an open-ended obligation and he is unhappy uh, right. with that. And America pays for everybody else's security. 
in his mind. In his view. So then what accounts for the continuity? Why is the uh, the statement that came out of the the meeting pretty consistent with those that we've seen from previous NATO summits? I think in part it's because NATO is a multilateral organization and you don't just slap together a NATO summit. It is negotiated sometimes tediously um, but certainly in, in great detail. That happens, it begins far in advance, and the content is is the subject of a you know a, a process um, so that every member of the alliance has some reasonable assurance about what's going to come out uh, at the other end. and And so that's why, unlike the G7, which is a much less uh, a much looser much less intergovernmental uh, and less institutionalized exactly uh, set of relationships, uh, a NATO summit is not the sort of thing that uh, you can just pull together. So I think that's one reason. The other reason is that you know NATO is is at the heart of what the administration on paper at least has described as its strategy for American security and defense. Um, allies right. are a big part of that. Uh, the national and, security strategy that was adopted by this administration seems to indicate that they have a fairly conventional view of the challenges to European security and the tools available for dealing with them, including NATO. That's right. And and in fact, they even go beyond, uh, I think, where the Obama administration uh, characterized things to to say we're in an era of of uh, great power competition um and and so in that respect how do you deal with the challenges and threats presented by Russia well alliances nato especially are a big part of it at the same time i think the president is trying to you know convey his unhappiness with the us role in the world and is trying to have his cake and eat it too. He's trying to to be able to say NATO is strong, um, but at the same time uh, complain about it mm-hmm. to an American audience. The problem is that that this approach has serious pitfalls embedded in it, and there are only so many times you can beat up on your friends and expect them, uh, you know, just to accept it and for their public opinion not to adjust. Sure. And we haven't talked about this yet, but obviously this comes in the context of a brewing trade war between the United States and several key European trading partners. Um, Some of the key European leaders, including Angela Merkel, also had bilateral meetings with uh, President Putin, which was covered in the press here in part uh, as uh, a sort of hedging of bets uh, against the potential for a further escalation of, of difficulties in the in the transatlantic relationship. Uh, so given all of this this turmoil between the US and Europe, where does Russia kind of fit into the to the picture right now? As you po- as you pointed out, there is this uh, trade uh, dispute between the US and and the European Union. And you know, diplomacy and international politics is always about priorities and choices. There is an endless list of things you would like to achieve. You have to decide which things you can achieve now. Uh, the Trump administration has decided that uh, a a trade fight with Europe is in its uh, in Washington's interest, and along and with that, the trade fight with China and several other countries. That's right. Um, and so, fighting a multi-front trade war constrains America's options 
when it comes to achieving other uh, other priorities. Now, how does Russia uh, fit in uh, fit in there? I think if you look at what NATO actually decided, there is a lot in this uh, summit declaration that looks familiar and that would not be welcome in Moscow. Uh, if you if you look at the the declarations passages that are devoted specifically to Russia. They have a lot in common with the Warsaw Summit back in 2016. Mm -hmm. um, even a little tougher in some ways because they are basically the first thing uh, that, you, that you encounter as you read the declaration. Uh, starts in the fourth paragraph. Uh, it talks about Russia breaching the values and uh, principles and commitments in the relationship uh, with the West. And it says that Russia has broken uh, the trust. So in addition to those accusations, it gets more specific. It talks about uh, violations of arms control and confidence mm -hmm. and security building measures. Uh, it talks about hybrid engagement against uh, NATO member states. And it mentions the, the nerve agent attack mm -hmm. in Salisbury and expresses full solidarity with, with the UK. Uh, if you look at the more specific measures, uh, the op more operationally significant measures, NATO has now implemented the forward presence mm -hmm. that it uh, agreed on back in Warsaw. So two years later, you now have uh, basically, uh, you know, a division's worth. Uh, sorry, a, a brigade's Brigade. worth of of NATO forces on the eastern flank, um, in addition to a strengthened NATO presence in Romania. And then when you look at things like nuclear deterrence, the alliance has stuck by the tougher language in the Warsaw Summit Declaration. So, so there you see NATO not backing off at all from the, the, the tough positions that it has moved toward since the annexation of Crimea and the invasion of eastern Ukraine. Now, the wild card is what might President Trump do that could circumvent or or in a way, um, nullify uh, some of those summit decisions when he has his bilateral meeting with Vladimir Putin. Right. So let's talk about the, the bilateral meeting with Vladimir Putin. Um, it seems a little unusual to schedule that meeting directly on the heels uh, of the NATO summit, especially given the optics uh, surrounding the NATO summit, which we've discussed. We also... I think don't have a great idea of what the agenda for the the Putin meeting uh, is going to be. Obviously, there's a lot of, of issues that could be discussed, um, but it seems that um, there hasn't been a lot of the usual spade work, if you will, that goes into to preparing a meeting of at this level. So what do you think the U.S. at least is trying to achieve in this meeting? What are some of the, the things that, um, in your mind, Trump may be seeking to, to get from Putin? And what are some of the dangers uh, that he might face in, in going into a meeting like this, especially now? Well, if this were a conventional administration, I would argue that a summit meeting with Putin after the NATO summit would make a lot of sense mm -hmm. because traditionally an American president uh, wants to do a couple of things uh, with with regard to Russia. Uh, one is to have as much support as possible, and so coming out of uh, coming out of a NATO summit with a unifying uh, message, a consensus on certain uh, measures and a and a position toward Russia would would strengthen an American leader in going into that meeting. It would also dispel any 
suspicions that the United States might cut a separate deal with with Russia or in the past with the Soviet Union mm-hmm. over the heads of America's European allies and and potentially damaging their interests um, uh, as as a result. So and that presumably would make the sense. Europeans at, at the NATO summit were eager to get that kind of a commitment. Well, that's right. And so there there was uh, an entire session that was basically devoted to regional security and that's really a way of saying the the threats and challenges from Russia. That was a meeting that similar to the Warsaw summit included Sweden and Finland, non-NATO members but countries that play an important role in uh, in Baltic Sea security and in European security more generally and that also reminds that these are countries with a strengthened relationship with NATO that are right. militarily capable and and that raises a little bit more ambiguity as far as Russia's own calculations mm-hmm. uh, and what they can right. expect. And countries, particularly Sweden, I guess, where there is an ongoing debate about whether NATO membership is something that they should pursue. You've got, yes, you've got three opposition parties in Sweden that are now supportive of NATO membership. Public opinion is not uh, yet at a majority uh, position on that, but but it is certainly a live uh, issue. And as we move closer to the uh, the Swedish election, uh, I think that issue will be more on the table. On the other hand, the given the rhetoric and the the way Donald Trump talks about alliances, you have to wonder uh, what kind of an effect that's going to have on Swedish public opinion um, uh, as well. Footnote: Though uh, NATO did invite. Macedonia mm-hmm. to uh, commence accession negotiations at this mm-hmm. summit. So that's a that's another uh, indication that NATO's door remains open. Mm-hmm. And it's also a, a concrete step that certainly will not be welcomed in Moscow. Right. And we should footnote to the footnote, maybe note that um, there have been some pretty credible allegations of Russian I don't know if you want to call them active measures, but steps to sort of destabilize Macedonia uh, in the run-up to this uh, NATO summit. So I think when we think about all of this in the context of the of the broader relationship, the continue the continuation of the open door policy, coupled with the increasing uncertainty surrounding the role of the United States, means that not only not only Macedonia but other countries in this kind of in between zone maybe especially in the in the Balkans um are going to be facing probably more of these kind of of actions on the part of Russia because of the uncertainty surrounding what kind of backup they're going to get and how much you know if they start drifting towards NATO the alliance in general and the U.S. in particular is going to, to be there for them. You're right. And I think if you look at this from a Moscow perspective, the time to engage if you're trying to stop uh, that membership, that accession process from going forward, the time to engage is now. And it was remarkable that uh, not just Macedonia but uh, Greece in the mm-hmm. last couple of days has uh, expelled a couple of Russian uh, diplomats um, and denied entry to a couple of others mm-hmm. because they were suspected or uh, accused of of being involved uh, in precisely those kinds uh. of activities. Now, Jeff, you asked a different uh, question also, which is what does the United States want right. out of this meeting? Before we started getting into footnotes. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and there is a long list of, of things the United States uh, – complaints the United States has about Russian uh, behavior, Russian uh, military uh, posture, Russia's policies. 
Uh, it's not really clear, though, which of those the president is going to highlight. Is is he going to focus on Ukraine and the need for Russia to engage uh, more seriously um, and withdraw its its forces, withdraw its support from separatists, and engage meaningfully in the uh, in the peace process? Will he raise Crimea? Uh, will there, what will the discussion about Syria be? Um, what is uh, the future of arms control between the U.S. and Russia? All of these issues potentially uh, are on the agenda, but which ones the United States and President Trump personally are going to emphasize is hard to tell. Yeah, well, and in which ways? Um, because on Crimea, there was a, a comment attributed to Trump at some point about potentially recognizing uh, Russia's annexation of Crimea. Or, or agreeing to or, disagree. Yeah, um, right. yeah. Um, which and, – and so those kinds of steps could also create divisions with our European allies. The, the European Union has imposed a series of sanctions related to the Crimea annexation as well as the Donbass intervention. And anything the United States does that's out of step is only going to create more friction with Europe. Now, whom does that benefit? Um, it, it doesn't benefit Washington. It doesn't benefit uh, the Europeans. It's, it's uh, been an objective of Moscow, though, though for a long time. Yeah. Now, Jeff, you're a, a former diplomat, and you've participated in preparations for these kind of meetings in your in your previous life. Based on that experience, how would you assess the the preparations for the for the Putin summit? Because, from what I can tell, as just kind of an observer from the outside, the lead up between when the summit was announced and when it's actually taking place was very short. Um, it wasn't. It didn't have the traditional level of, of uh, sort of professional staffing, and that's part of the reason we're not entirely sure what's on the agenda. Um, and it seems to be a little bit more improvisational, perhaps, than these than these meetings typically are. Does that seem right? There's always activity that is not visible um, to the public, so um, it's it's difficult to say definitively. Um, that this is a summit that's just been conjured out of thin air uh, on relatively short notice, and therefore will be uh, will be thinner on substance than uh, than your average um, summit in your average administration. But there are certainly those characteristics evident. Um, there's there's not been a clear uh, explanation in public. Um, you know, usually before a summit, if I could backtrack, you'll have a public diplomacy strategy that goes along mm -hmm. with it. That's that's uh, you know you'll have either the Secretary of State or perhaps the National Security Advisor or some other senior official who will give a speech or make some kind of remarks that uh, that outline the key objectives Washington is trying to pursue, and we'll try to frame the issue for public discussion so that uh, the United States government remains. You know, kind of in control of the message right. um, and and defines the objectives. That really hasn't happened, um, which suggests either that uh, there's there's not enough agreement on the 
prioritization and mm-hmm. or not enough assurance that it will uh, it will be successful. Um, but that's clearly one indication that this is being approached in a different way. Now, the, the National Security Advisor has met with his Russian mm-hmm. uh, counterparts uh, to to work on the preparation of the summit. Um, there hasn't been a whole lot of um, information leaking out about that. So it's hard to tell right. where they've decided to place their emphasis um, and where the prospective areas of agreement might be. Mm-hmm. So because we're recording this before the summit or sorry, bilateral meeting has taken place. We don't know how it's going to go. But um, what are some of the things that you would watch for to assess what ultimately um, the significance of this meeting is going to be? Well, I think if we we have a recent example that we can compare, which is the President Trump's meeting with uh, with Kim Jong Un, mm-hmm. and the outcome of that meeting was an extremely short statement that was highly ambiguous, mm-hmm. and uh, over which the uh, the two sides almost immediately diverged in their in interpretations. interpretations. So I think that's one of the key things mm-hmm. to look for. Will there be some kind of joint statement, joint press availability, or uh, or other interaction where the United States and Russia can demonstrate that they're actually on the same page? Um, and and if that's the case, then you can start to look at the actual substance. Um, mm-hmm. But if if somehow I'm guessing that joint press availability with Trump and Putin is not very likely, but maybe wrong. Uh, who knows? I, yeah. I don't know what's in the works. Um, uh, but but there there is a there is a compelling need for the United States to ensure that. Russia doesn't interpret this meeting to the world. Mm-hmm. You know, we we saw a, a visit by several Republican senators and one member yeah. of the House to Moscow just last week, and that Never was July Fourth, incidentally. Yeah, I'm, you know, members of Congress traveling on July Fourth is not a problem. I think what it, what is what is more striking about that visit is their inability. To, to control or to deliver their own message about mm-hmm. why they were there, what they were talking about, what they demanded from the Russian side, and what the Russian side was, um, was willing to, um, to offer in return. Instead, they completely yielded the field to the Russians. So you had uh, Russian officials interpreting not only to the American public, but of course to their to own their public, own. What, uh, what was going on. And they were trying to shape this as a message of saying, hey, the Americans are ready to make nice with us. Mm-hmm. They didn't raise any of the difficult issues. Um, so things are really changing in U.S.-Russian relations. If that will be continued at the, uh, at the Trump-Putin summit, substantively, I don't know. But certainly, the United States needs uh, to, uh, to do more to ensure that its message um, is, is in the mix and uh, the Russians don't have, that, uh, have free reign in telling the world what they've agreed. Mm-hmm. So given all that, does a Putin-Trump summit at this point make sense? If you were advising the, the White House, would you tell them to, to go ahead with this meeting or not? First of all, it is important for the United States and Russia as the two largest nuclear powers in the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to remain in contact. Mm-hmm. There is no good that comes of uh, a lack of communication uh, between the US and Russia. So I think you know some people who have criticized the summit even for happening, I think that's a bit misplaced. Mm-hmm. But 
what needs to happen is a you know for the United States to engage the Russian leadership on the basis of a, a clearly thought out agenda that advances U.S. interests and is and can be reliably expected to advance them, and then engagement can make sense. Um, but what what doesn't uh, advance U.S. interests is something that appears to bring Moscow back into Washington's good graces at no cost to right, Moscow. Right, without any substantive movement on the issues that have been at the heart of the disputes between Moscow and Washington over the last several years. Yeah. And and so there is, of course, plenty to talk about. Um, uh, and uh, so it could, it, it could be, uh, uh, you know, propitious timing if the United States is prepared uh, with a substantive agenda that is going to require, you know, real movement by Moscow uh, in exchange for whatever mm -hmm. Washington's ready uh, to put on the table. I think that coming back to the the question of of what's on the agenda is the question of what Russia is willing to offer the United States. It's it's pretty clear what Russia would like mm -hmm. from the U.S. and from Europe. They yes. want a stop to NATO enlargement. They want uh, NATO to scale back its military presence and uh, adopt uh, a different kind of military posture. They want a lifting of sanctions. Uh, they, they want the United States to basically to stop making Russia's life difficult in Syria. There are a whole bunch of things that, that Russia wants. Right. I think a sort of primacy in at least the post-Soviet region, some kind of larger agreement to discuss Russia's place in the European security order. There's a whole lot of things. It's much easier for me at least to come up with what the list of, of Russian desires for a meeting like this would be than what the American ones would be. And and then what and also what Russia is willing to uh, to offer in order to uh, to achieve uh, mm -hmm. those things. Um, so I, I think there is uh, the, one of the major criticisms of the Singapore summit with Kim Jong Un was that the Americans gave away too much too mm -hmm. soon. They gave Kim a global platform. Right. Um, they gave him uh, access to the American president. That minimized the international pressure that had been constricting uh, the North Korean regime's ability to act and was damaging their economic prospects. And I would argue that you could say the exact same thing about Russia because as much as Russia and North Korea are very different places, I think the approach of the Obama administration and carrying over at least into the beginning of the Trump administration, administration through inertia, if nothing else, and certainly on the part of the Europeans, has been to isolate Russia. It's been to use sanctions, diplomatic isolation uh, as a way of putting pressure on Russia over its intervention in Ukraine, its actions in Syria, and its role in manipulating the internal politics of, of countries from the United States to Europe and elsewhere. Yeah. Uh I, I wouldn't. I, I also would not put uh, Russia in anywhere near the same category as North Korea. But it, it's you know it, it's true that a, a, a lot of pressure has been developed and employed. And if you're going to ease that back, you should be doing it for a reason. For something. Uh, I think. I think another thing to keep in mind, and it's in a way where we started our conversation. This it is is an administration that is, it seems, ambivalent about 
the U.S. alliance-led system mm -hmm. in the world. And, and so the question is, you know, does the administration and does this president plan to preserve and use to his advantage the alliances the United States has in the world? Or is he looking to free the United States mm -hmm. from encumbering alliances, uh, to use a historical uh, yeah. term? And, and if so, um, is the meeting with President Putin in Helsinki going to be one of the first steps? An interesting aspect of the president's criticism in Brussels toward Merkel and Germany was about Nord Stream 2. Mm -hmm. And the president went on f at great length about his unhappiness with uh, Germany purchasing Russian gas uh, through a, uh, an expanded mm -hmm. uh, North Stream pipeline. Now, there are a couple of ways to look at this. First of all, North Stream is well on its way toward happening. Right. The laying of the pipeline has begun. All of the necessary permission in Germany has been achieved. Which means a lot of money has, has been sunk into this project already. Right. The, there's only, you know, so, so this, this, is, this is on its way to happening. So when the president raises such uh, you know, vehement objections at a point when there's not much left that you can do to stop it, you have to wonder, uh, on the one hand, is he really um, just venting uh, about Germany? Mm. Um, or is he setting the stage potentially for U.S. sanctions on the North Stream pipeline, sanctions that would be, uh, you know, that's a power that has been given to the president in the CATSA mm -hmm. legislation. I think it's uh, more blowing off uh, steam and potentially um, creating a kind of equivalence. By, by criticizing Germany over its ties to mm -hmm. Russia, um, he establishes a path through which he can justify U.S. overtures yeah. toward Russia. As, as uh, the Russians would say, nashini khuja. Yeah. He's not trying to stop Germany from what it's doing. If he wanted to do that, then the United States would have been doing something quite different six and 12 months ago. Um, instead, this may be an attempt to take advantage of that situation um, to, to give President Trump more leeway mm -hmm. um, and a justification for, for what he for might his want own to do with actions vis-a-vis -vis Russia, whatever that, those that's may right. be. That's right. Okay. Um, well, we will uh, be watching closely and hopefully uh, in a future Russian roulette, we can talk a little bit about uh, what actually went down at the summit. Jeff, thanks for joining us. It's, it's a pleasure as always. Thank you. Okay, uh, we are now going to dive into the mailbag, uh, something that we haven't done here on Russian Roulette in a little while. We've got a bunch of good questions, and I uh, hope you will keep them coming. So let's get to it. Um, our first question comes from Stephen Connor in Kirimer. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Scotland. Stephen says, during the interview with uh, Ksenia Subchuk, Ms. Subchuk expressed her opinion that the greatness of Russia is not in its military, but in its culture. So then Stephen asks, uh, well, how exportable current Russian culture is? Classical culture uh, or contemporary post-Soviet culture? 
That's uh, a good question, Stephen, uh, because I think we became familiar with Russian cultural diplomacy during the Cold War, the the travels of the Bolshoi Ballet and uh, and everything else, uh, and that was a big part of the of the Soviet brand. Today, some of these initiatives are a little bit less visible. Uh, I think in part because the cultural space is a little bit more saturated. Russia is not the Soviet Union; it's more open to the world. So you know, a single visit by the Bolshoi Ballet to New York or London uh, is not going to get as much attention today as it did during the Cold War. But that said, uh, there's a lot of other culture that's going on uh, in Russia, too. You asked about contemporary culture. There's a very vibrant uh, arts, music, literary scene in Russia right now, which I would argue doesn't always get as much attention uh, in the West as perhaps it could uh, or should. Um, I think that probably has less to do with politics and more to do with um, the fact that much of it ends up not getting translated into English, uh, having to do with sort of questions about marketability um, and everything else. But we know, for example, that uh, a Russian language writer, though she lives in Belarus, Svetlana Alexeyevich, won the Nobel Prize uh, just a couple of years ago. There are uh, Russian music acts uh, that perform uh, at festivals and, and concerts in the West. Of course, Russia is now in the midst of, of hosting the World Cup, which has been an enormous uh, opportunity for Russia to showcase um, itself and to, and to showcase aspects of its culture to a much wider audience um, than might have been the case at, at other points in the past. So Russian culture is quite vibrant uh, in a lot of ways right now. But the question about how exportable it is, well, that that's a little bit more difficult. And again, I think the, the impediments are different from what they were uh, during the Cold War. But I think it's, it's fair to, to say that maybe Russian culture is not as uh, evident or, or visible uh, globally uh, as it might be given the size uh, and importance of Russia. Our next question comes from Asim Awad, who doesn't say where uh, he or she is from. But Asim asks, uh, it seems that nationalism uh, in Russia has rejuvenated uh, ethnic nationalism. What is the relationship between Russian ethnic nationalism uh, and nationalism in Europe? Uh, are leaders of ethno-national movements in Europe, like Viktor Orban uh, in Hungary, uh, Marine Le Pen in France, are they uniformly sympathetic to Putin? Thanks for the question, Asim. Well, like many things, uh, the answer is complicated. Russian nationalism exists in multiple forms. Uh, it's sometimes ethnic nationalism, but it's also sometimes uh, a kind of great power or, or civilizational nationalism. Um, it's worth keeping in mind that about 70% of the Russian population is ethnic Russian. The other 30% is a, a wide range of, of people uh, from different backgrounds, um, Central Asian, Caucasian, Finnic, uh, Turkic, uh, Mongolian, others. So Russia has always been cautious about uh, ethnic Russian nationalism because of the potential that it holds for creating divisions within Russian society. Um, and so the, the nationalism that uh, has been most salient, at least from the perspective of the Russian government, is more of this what I would call civilizational or great power nationalism. It's that Russia is a great state with a great culture and a great civilization and that all of these different peoples, regardless of whether they're Russians or Slavs or Orthodox, uh, are part of it. 
as far as Europe goes, uh, yes, Russia has been supportive of a variety of ethno-nationalist movements. Uh, you mentioned uh, a couple of, of political figures uh, who have benefited from Russian support. Um, but I think it's worth keeping in mind that Russian uh, involvement in European politics doesn't confine itself to nationalist movements. Uh, Russian money and uh, information operations have supported non-mainstream political parties of the left as well as the right. Um, and I think that Russian support for nationalist figures like Orban uh, and Le Pen is much more opportunistic from the Russian perspective rather than uh, based on a kind of uh, nationalist conviction. And as far as Europeans go, um, they're not all uniformly sympathetic to Putin uh, or to Russia. Uh, the ones that uh, Asim, you mentioned, uh, Orban and Le Pen certainly are. Uh, on the other hand, you have uh, a very strongly nationalist government in Poland right now, uh, led by the uh, Law and Justice Party, uh, which is quite hostile to Russia uh, and to, to Putin, um, based on the very complicated, difficult history uh, that Russia and Poland have. Uh, Polish nationalism is in a lot of ways uh, based on opposition to, uh, to Russia. I think you have a similar phenomenon visible now in, in Ukraine, certainly since the, the Russian intervention uh, in Ukraine, where Ukrainian nationalism is defined to a significant degree uh, on the basis of being anti-Russian. And for that reason, Russia views Ukrainian nationalists uh, as a threat. Uh, and has intervened in, in Ukrainian politics to push back against what it sees as the as the rise of Ukrainian ethnic nationalism. So like many things, um, the picture is complex. Our next question comes from Emma Vysafirov, who lives in New York, uh, but was born in Tashkent, uh, Uzbekistan, and later lived in Israel before coming to New York. So Emma says... Even though she was born in Tashkent uh, and grew up in Israel, my parents never let me forget Russian, uh, for which I will be grateful to them for as long as I live, um, but they never knew much Uzbek. They were born and raised in Tashkent. Uh, they were in their 30s by the time they moved away, um, but they did quite well in Tashkent uh, since everybody spoke Russian. And so Emma asks, can you talk a little bit about the cultural and linguistic relationships uh, that formed in the USSR, which allowed for this phenomenon? Well, uh, sure, can discuss that. So the USSR was a union, um, a union of Soviet socialist republics, of which uh, there were 15 uh, by the time it collapsed. And each of these 15 republics acted as a kind of incubator uh, for a kind of national consciousness or national culture. Uh, the Soviet Union was what... Um, Terry Martin, a historian at Harvard, calls uh, an affirmative action empire, where each of these 15 republics adopted a kind of uh, affirmative action towards the uh, titular ethnic group in that republic. So Uzbeks in Uzbekistan, Kazakhs in Kazakhstan, uh, Belarusians in Belarus, and, and etc. That said, though, the lingua franca throughout the entire USSR, and very much the lingua franca among the uh, intellectual and cultural and political elite uh, was Russian. Uh, so regardless of where you went in the USSR, uh, if you wanted to get ahead, you had to know Russian. It was the prestige language. Uh, it was the dominant language in um, schools, in the press, in government. Uh, 
So most people, especially those who were from the intelligentsia, who were uh, well-educated, um, spoke and probably preferred speaking uh, Russian. And as the experience of Emma's parents indicates, you didn't need to speak Uzbek in order to get ahead in Uzbekistan, at least not until fairly late uh, in the Soviet period. Um, but regardless of where you lived, if you wanted to get ahead, uh, you, you really needed to know Russian. Um, and one of the consequences of this was the creation of a kind of Soviet culture that crossed the borders between the different republics. And so somebody uh, who grew up speaking Russian in Tashkent um, could go to, to Moscow or Leningrad or wherever and still speak Russian and still in some ways feel um, at home, linguistically at least, if not in terms of, of the broader culture. So hopefully that uh, answered your question. And we have one final question today, uh, which comes from Sophia Freuden, who doesn't say where uh, she's from, but says that she is a young scholar interested in both studying and working uh, on U.S.-Russian relations and wants to know how younger people should structure their studies or work to avoid uh, what she calls the historical cycles endemic to these two countries' relations. Um, well, since I barely can call myself a young scholar anymore, um, I'm going to allow uh, someone who actually is uh, a younger scholar of Russia to answer this question. So I'm going to ask uh, our producer and research assistant, Cyrus Newland, to take this one. So Cyrus, what's your advice for young people? Thanks, Jeff. Um, it's a really good question. Um, I think I'd answer it in three points. The first point is go to Russia <laughs> and then go back to Russia and then return to Russia again and keep returning to Russia. Um, or occasionally, you know, you can mix it up and go to Ukraine, Ukraine or, or Georgia. Uzbekistan. Or, I was yeah. just in Georgia myself for vacation. Um, the point is, is sort of in-country experience no longer seems to be a, a sort of a prerequisite for commenting on Russia, though arguably it should be. Um, Visiting a country is is fundamentally a humanizing experience, and that's what this relationship um, needs right now, first and foremost. I think going back to a country allows for the idea that a country evolves and changes. Um, and Russia, so do you. Yeah, exactly. Um, Russia has um, changed a lot even since I've first been there in, in 2014. Um, I think it's important for Americans to understand that Russia is going through its own cycles, political cycles, social cycles, and evolutions, and that the country is bigger than, than simply its government. Second point, study Russian culture, film, music, literature, and talk about it at parties. Um, <laughs> you have to go to the right parties, but that's part of, <laughs> that's part of the education process too. It's it's a little bit of a trope to imagine that Russia, Russian politics, Russian people can only be understood if you've sort of mastered its literature, if you've read the Dostoevskys and the Tolstoys. Um, and I mean it less in the sense that that reading this literature will, will unlock some perspective on Russian politics that you won't have otherwise, although I think that's also true. Yeah, and um, by all means, read Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, but don't only read Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Right, but but more so in the sense that it, it places Russia in the American psyche sort of outside of politics. Um, it makes it a country and a culture and a people that um, is it's worth having a relationship with. I mean, when we mention 
Other countries with whom the U.S. has an adversarial relationship, for example, China, um, the first thing most Americans think of isn't tariffs. That's because China has a sort of meaning within the United States that's that's bigger than politics. It's bigger than economics. Um, for some reason, that's that's that seems to be missing for Russia. So any way that you can expand Russia's image within the United States, I think, um, would be in a political way really beneficial. My last point is to study other facets of the relationship than those in the realm of security. Um, I think there is a historical tendency for Americans to securitize the relationship um, by pairing Russian studies with intelligence or arms control or general security studies, but there's sort of facets of the relationship that didn't used to exist that exists now and, and are, are worth exploring and developing. Um, those include economic relations, trade relations, they include cooperation in, on environmental issues, for example. Education. Education, health. The point is... Uh, our relationship with Russia should be should be bigger than the security realm, um, but it's on us to imagine how that relationship could expand, um, and that's also um, on Russians as well. Great. That was really helpful. I would just add one additional point, which is do your best to learn the language. Um, you're, this gets back to Cyrus's point about visiting a country and visiting it again and also about reading the literature. But the only way to really kind of drill down into a place, whether it's Russia or, or any other place, is to be able to engage it on its own terms. And to do that, it really, really, really helps to learn the language. Um, so study Russian uh, in school, spend time learning the language in Russia or in another Russian-speaking country, um, and talk to Russians, uh, whether in in wherever it is you live or uh, in Russia and other Russian-speaking parts of the world. Um, and keep at it. Uh, you know, Russia's not going anywhere. We're, we're going to continue needing uh, Russia specialists. We're going to need a younger generation of Russia specialists that's not uh, shaped by the experience of the Cold War. So I think uh, despite everything, uh, it's a good time to be studying these things. Thank you for joining us uh, and listening to Russian Roulette again. We will provide a link to Jeff Rathke's uh, page on the CSIS website in the show notes. As always, a reminder to those of you who haven't uh, that you should subscribe to Russian Roulette on iTunes, uh, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. Uh, if you're not an iTunes user, you can check us out and subscribe on Google Play or on SoundCloud. Keep listening and keep spreading the word. We just read a bunch of mail from our mailbag, uh, which means we want you to send us more. So we'll have more mail to read. Uh, send us your mailbag questions uh, to rep at csis.org and put the words Russian roulette in the subject line. Uh, you should also follow us on Twitter at CSIS Russia. Uh, you can follow me directly at Dr. J. Mankoff, and you can follow Olya at Olya Oliker. And of course, uh, as always, thank you again to everyone who works so hard to make the podcast possible. That includes our research associate, uh, program manager, and producer, Cyrus Newland, our interns, Kimberly Schuster and Leah Khalikova, and the whole CSIS external relations and iLab teams. Until next time.